Hello and welcome to Boiled Down. I'm your host, Greg Astley, Orla Director of Government Affairs. Joining me today from the Orla team is Jason Brandt, Orla President and CEO, and Bill Perry from Balance Point Strategies, Orla's contract lobbyist. Welcome, Bill. Hey, thanks. Glad to be here. So we've got a session coming up, but before we get into all that, because I know it's going to be an enjoyable and an interesting and fun conversation, uh, let's talk uh, baseballs and puppy dogs. So uh, you've got a, a four-legged friend that just recently had a birthday. Oh, yeah, Poncho. Big Poncho. My uh, 4.30 morning walking buddy. <laughs> and uh, as a treat, you took him someplace special for his birthday this year, didn't you? Yeah, Dairy Queen does little doggy ice cream cones. Uh, and so we always take him there on August 9th or January 9th, his uh, birthday. So, yeah. That's perfect. And he was three this year, is that right? Three years old. So did you add a little something? Because in dog years, he would have been 21. Did he get no, a little yeah, something extra? Didn't put a little clue on it, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. So well, uh, I wasn't sure if he was going to drive home or not, so I want to make sure. <laughs> Maybe next year. Mm-hmm. So, um, And uh, let's talk baseball, because uh, Pat Casey's coming to speak at a breakfast, I know, uh, very soon in, in uh, Salem. And uh, we've got... Uh, well, the Beavers are looking pretty good this year again, aren't they? Oh, yeah. No, the Beavers, uh, their pitching squad's going to be probably as good as it was last time. But, uh, you know, you lose Madrigal and Grenier in the middle of the infield, and that's a lot of leadership. I think they've got talent, but they got to see if they replace the leadership. So, Well, and Casey's stepped away from his coaching role and is now an associate athletic director, but he, he may be back. Is that right? Oh, yeah. I think there's a lot of rumors and stuff going, but I think he was a little burned out, so we'll see if he comes back. But. We don't want to talk about my pitching team, my my team. Or well, tell us team. about tell us about your team, Bill. Well, you know, my, I'm a pitching coach. That's Balance Point. That's where that that comes from. And uh, we got tryouts in February. And so, Nick, my boy, is going to be 13, and he uh, is going to be in seniors of JBO this year. So, wow, moves back to the full length mound, which is always exciting. Yeah. Well, that's uh, we'll look forward to hearing more about how the season goes for him this year as well. So that's great. Mm-hmm. Love it. Well, uh, today we do have a great interview, Bill. We're going to be talking about the legislative session. But before we get into that, uh, we want to make sure you're getting the most out of your membership. And to help you do that, we'd like to highlight a benefit you may or may not be aware of. Did you know members get additional discounts for Human Trafficking Awareness Month with Guardian Group? Members can receive the Guardian SEAL Human Trafficking Recognition and Response Training for only $250 if it's purchased this month. If you visit guardianlearningcenter.com, Use the promo code Orla Jan J A N nineteen and uh, nineteen is one and nine. Again, Orla Jan nineteen. Use that promo code at guardianlearningcenter.com and uh, get some uh, discounts on human trafficking recognition and response training. If you're not a member, visit OregonRLA.org where you can join and start taking advantage of the many growing benefits that we offer. And again, uh, I'm very excited to have Bill Perry here, uh, Balance Point Strategies, talking about our 2019 legislative session for Orla and some of the things happening in the building. And uh, I guess, Bill, um, before we get into specific legislation, let's talk a little bit about the atmosphere um, at the Capitol, because there's been a few things that have happened um, already uh, kind of prior to the session, uh, including a report by Bully on some of the sexual harassment issues that have happened and questions about uh, leadership, specifically Senate President Peter Courtney and Speaker of the House Tina Kotek. How do you think that that report is going to uh, impact, I guess, the, the relationships and some of the discussions that are in the building as well as maybe legislation? 
well, I mean, obviously, it doesn't put a, uh, I would say, a, a positive spin on the legislation or legislature as they come into it. So I do think uh, it's going to probably have some hurt feelings, tensions, or whatever uh, coming into it. Um, but I do think, kind of, as the report settles in, everybody kind of sees what's in it and everything else. I do think. You know, once bills start moving, uh, it, everything's going to kind of set into a flow. Um, I would say it's always good when this kind of stuff kind of comes out. People can start to really look at, you know, procedures that have been work, uh, in place, different things, so they can fix some of the problems that has existed. But, you know, it uh, it is a building that has always tried to protect its own, for lack of a better term. And I'm not saying that is good or bad. I'm just saying that it is what a... And so these kind of checks and balances are always good in government. And, and uh, so I think, you know, it's going to create, you know, a little bit of tension as they get started. But the legislature will get into a flow eventually and it'll kind of move forward. It's been a little bit of a rocky start for our Senate president, Peter Courtney, not only because of the bully report, but then uh, the day before uh, everyone was sworn in, his communications director, Robin Maxey, uh, been with him for 11 years, resigned. Uh, and then there was also a vote uh, for the Senate president that um, probably had at least one surprise, I guess. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, uh, one surprise because you had a, a member of your own party vote against him, and it was really over, I think, the report and everything else. But I, you know, and, and you had a couple of people in the other party vote against him. But, you know, generally in the past, you all, they usually put up one candidate from each party, no matter who's in control. The majority party puts in Sunday. And the minority party puts up somebody, and they usually vote on party line. The Senate this year, just the minority party didn't put up a candidate uh, like they did in the in the House. And you did have, you had one Democrat senator and two Republican senator vote against uh, Courtney, which, you know, I, I think never makes you feel good as a Senate president. But once again, in the long term, I don't know how much of an impact it'll have, but sure. we'll see. Sure. And just as a reminder for our listeners out there, uh, in this session, uh, Democrats do hold a supermajority in both chambers, 38 seats in the House and 18 in the Senate, correct? Yes. And so that that is what they need. They need 36 and 18 for tax votes. Um, but the other kind of revenue measure that could be into play is if because the kickers in the Constitution, they would need 20 senators in the Senate and 40 in the House to keep the kicker because the kicker is uh, most likely everybody believes going to kick this time. So you do have two kind of different revenue things that they exceed the amount on general revenue, but there's still a couple of short on the kicker revenue. And on the kicker, that would be just a one-time exemption for this biennium. Is that correct? Yeah. What the Constitution says is if you want to keep it the one, uh, then you would uh, basically need a 40-20 vote. There is some talk about referring what you do with future kickers into a rainy day fund. That would be just a party line vote, which mean, or a, a simple majority, which would be a 31-16, but it would need to be referred to the voters, and the voters would need to approve it for any long-term changes to the kicker. Okay, great. Well, not to keep picking on Senate President Peter Courtney, but uh, one of the bills that was <laughs> introduced was by him. Uh, and as he told me himself, it was probably one that we were not going to like, and he was right. And that mm -hmm. would be uh, lowering the blood alcohol content level from 0.08 to 0.05 when it comes to driving under the influence or driving while impaired. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the history on this? I know that uh, actually Senator Courtney was the one that 
got it lowered from 1.0 to 0.08 in Oregon back in like 81 or 83. Uh, and then Utah followed suit. Utah has recently passed it going from 0.08 to 0.05. But Oregon would be the second state if that does pass. Yeah, there was a bu- big push years ago to drop everything from uh, get every state unified at 0.08. Um, and even at one point, the federal government used held in in my terms, uh, states hostage with transportation money to get them at 0.08. Now we do have a unified standard. Um, Courtney years ago tried, pushed a bill for 05, but it never kind of got any traction. Um, And it's been probably six, seven years since he's done that, if not longer. But then obviously Utah dropping it to 0.05 has kind of rekindled, for lack of a better term, the debate. Uh, And so, you know, I... I do think it's going to be debate. I I do think it's good to have the conversation per se because nobody obviously wants anybody to drive while they're impaired. But there are a couple of things I would say uh, just to kind of keep in mind. Number one, it's illegal to drive impaired. You know, the .08 standard, remember, just says that we don't have to prove you're impaired at .08. Uh, but you can get uh, driving under the influence for anything under .08 if you're impaired. And when you talk about impaired drivers, uh, the fastest growing what a population of impaired drivers is really marijuana. Um, you know, there's not a lot of people getting pulled over under 0.08, but there's a lot of people getting pulled over under the influence of marijuana, opioids. I mean, there's all these different drugs that are, are the biggest growing population. And so really the focus uh, I think should be in there. It should be going that way, uh, especially because I do think there's going to be a big push to have uh, places where people can go smoke marijuana. Right now, it's legal to smoke marijuana in your home or a private residence. You're not supposed to be doing it in public. They want venues where you can go out in public and drive or public and smoke marijuana. And obviously, this is going to create more people driving under the influence of marijuana. So I, I really think if you look at where in impaired drivers are today, the population that is becoming more of a traffic health hazard, for lack of a better term, is is not in alcohol. It's in the other, basically, drugs. I think it was interesting, too, that in Utah, Mothers Against Drunk Driving did not support lowering the blood alcohol content level from 0.08 to 0.05. And that here in Oregon, we've already heard from um, some of the Oregon State Police officers that they just don't have the resources uh, where would this be the case and that they don't see the the problem uh, between the 0.05 and the 0.08 that we've talked about? Yeah, I, I would say I think when you talk to any level of police officers, whether city, county or state, what one of the biggest issues for safety, I mean, just look, we're looking overall safety, not just talking about um, uh, impaired drivers right now, is there really there aren't enough people or enough law enforcement officers on patrol, for lack of a better term, or on duty. And so if you're looking at trying to impact impaired drivers or other impacts of safety, it's really about how do you get people on the street. And so you can lower uh, the blood alcohol, you can do a lot of things, but if you don't have people on the street, it's it's not going to change kind of the outcome. So I would say that in talking to law enforcement, and I'm not trying to speak for them, they said, you know, the impaired drivers is a big issue. You know, they don't, uh, you know, I would think they would agree that the other things behi- besides alcohol are the biggest ones that are growing. And so if we want to try to reduce impaired drivers, it's getting people on the streets necessarily. It's not 
you know, lowering the BAC. And I would, I think the the governor's um, council on drunk driving is kind of in the same spot. You know, I don't, none of them are going to come out and oppose like mad uh, a lowering of 0.05, but I think all of them kind of feel that, you know, there there is a responsibility to try to get impaired drivers off the road. What is the best action? I think they just feel there's better avenues than this. Sure. So. Great. Well, moving off of that, uh, let's talk about single-use disposables, plastics, uh, straws. Portland recently passed their um, single-use disposable ordinance that says that you have to ask for it as a customer, uh, that they're not going to be automatically provided if you're at a dine-in restaurant, or even when you take out, the employees will be required to um, ask customers, you know, do you need utensils? Do you need straws? How many do you need? Um, seems to be some movement at the state level for some sort of policy as well uh, would help. I know that Orla has always been a big supporter of um, statewide preemption to make sure that we don't have 36 different, you know, or 110 different policies around the state that, that our members have to deal with. So um, what's the word on single-use disposables at this point? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I think you, you kind of hit on one of the important ones. Really, if you're, if you're trying to change customer behavior, doing it local jurisdiction, a local jurisdiction doesn't create enough market, uh, if you think about it, enough market for a lot of the suppliers to basically change their practices. Uh, like I always said, you know, California banning something changes the way people operate because it's a big enough segment of the marketplace. When you look at Oregon, we're really only 1% to 2% of the marketplace. And if you go down to local governments like Portland, you're talking about, you know, a minute percentage. And so you're not going to get a good alternative in the marketplace by doing it that way. Um, so, you know, giving customers a choice, uh, you know, is always kind of a better option uh, because, you know, there are different things as, as, you know, I don't know if we've talked about it before, but obviously you have the disabled community that there are certain populations that, you know, it's better for them to have straws, uh, you know, and it's it just, it's as any of these policies, a one size fits all, you're going to always have winners or losers. So how do you try to basically make sure that customers needs are met without, you know, and trying to protect basically the environment for lack of a better term in here. So, you know, I do think there's an option here to where, you know, customers, you know, should be able to request them. You kind of reduce a lot of the uh, garbage, for lack of a better term, uh, as they move forward. But, you know, it really is trying to find a middle ground uh, until you can figure out a way to deal with the needs of the disabled community and different things that, you know, this is probably a good first step to make sure that the market tries to look for different alternatives. Yeah, and a lot of our members have already said that they've, uh, you know, eliminated them or turned to a by request only even yeah. before Portland passed their ordinance. Um, some of them are looking for alternatives because of the push right now. And I, and I guess the, you know, everybody looking to eliminate plastic straws, the, the number one paper straw supplier in the country says they can't keep up with demand. So uh, those are considerations that you have to take into account as well. But um, as I said, I know a lot of our folks up in Portland have already started making those changes. And um, so we'll see how this goes in the future, but uh, looking statewide. Yeah. And I was just going to say too, I mean, a lot of these, these things come out as environmental, which I, I don't know if you remember the whole styrofoam clamshells that they used to have for fast food places, that stuff was recycled. And when they banned them, you went to plastic coated cardboard, which isn't recyclable. And then you had the whole plastic bag debate 
or even DEQ and a, a bunch of different environmental regulators came in and said, the carbon footprint for a plastic bag is much lower than the carbon footprint for a paper bag. Right. So, I mean, a lot of it, and I'm not saying that's good or bad one way or another, but, you know, a lot of times these are thrown out because people are frustrated with the amount of plastic or whatever. Uh, but, you know, it's just throwing out a solution uh it can create more problems sometimes both from an environmental standpoint and a customer standpoint. Uh, and so I, it really is how do you find a way to transition and what are the alternatives and are they actually better? It's, it's something we, you know, it just takes a little bit of time. Sure. Well, let's, uh, let's switch gears a little bit and uh, talk about some of the bills that would impact our lodging members. Um, as always, you know, I know we're going to be in that building protecting the lodging tax disbursement um, any surprises, anything that you think uh, might be coming up in terms of how the lodging taxes are going to be distributed or anything that might be uh, on our radar that we need to make sure that we're uh, keeping everybody informed about? No, it's, it, I mean, it, it is, when you look at the lodging tax, it is something that, you know, there's, there's about probably 10 bills out there that come from different directions. Uh, you've got, you know, one bill on the coast that basically is trying to get lodging tax to pay for uh, employee housing. You've got one bill that takes lodging tax for beach cleanup. You've got the Eastern Oregon uh, bills that basically take lodging tax for search and rescue. You've got, you know, you got bills in Portland that, that deal with uh, housing. You know, everybody's kind of got, oh, and then you got one from Hillsboro, which is uh, paying for uh, training for uh, teenagers. Uh, so, I mean, it's you're going to have no shortage of good ideas of how to spend lodging tax, but I I think just it reaffirms why we're in the situation that we're in in lodging tax, which is, you know, if we're looking about long-term economic development, it's one of the best partnerships the state has from the state to federal to local. And so it really is, if we're looking at moving forward and trying to, well, I use the example of, of on the coast, you know, the lodging tax is not necessarily promoting uh, activities in the summer when people are busy. The lodging tax is trying to get people out there in the shoulder season. So if getting them out there January, February, this time of year when it's not always easy. If you're looking at housing, which is a you know fundamental problem, I think, with everybody, employees in, in on the coast make a lot of money in the summer. They don't make any money in, in the winter. And so the question is, if you're trying to provide housing, stabilizing their income year round is better than trying to build extra units because if they can't afford it in the winter, they can't afford it in the, the winter. So I really think the lodging tax is doing a lot to protect housing, to do different things because it's trying to basically make the economy more stable year round uh, where we have kind of ups and downs in these communities. So, you know, uh, obviously I'm making the argument uh, <laughs> that I think as some of these problems can be fixed or help be fixed if our if our lodging tax is left alone and we're able to do the economic development year round. Sure. And then on short-term rentals, because that's obviously a part of what we're, we've been talking about, whether it comes to lodging taxes or code uh, compliance. I know that um, you know we've had some discussions with some other groups that are interested in this. What what kind of bills do you see around uh, short-term rental uh, compliance? Well, it's really going to be about the collection of the taxes, I think, will be the first, because, I mean, I think it's the most obvious that, you know, the legislature, even back, you go back to the 2003 when it talked about, you know, it doesn't, when it, it talks about transient lodging, it talks about, you know, hotels, inns, bed and breakfasts, houses, or rooms in houses. It's always been 
that the lodging community is basically considered all those different options. Uh, but I think when you look at these uh, home sharing platforms, there's been a few of them that basically think that they don't have to pay the lodging tax. And I think the legislature and others have been pretty clear that they have to. And so, you know, it's just trying to get them into compliance and and uh, it's something we've been working with the cities on. But I, you know, as we've said, safety is also a factor. Um, and I'm not sure that putting somebody in the attic uh, is the best thing at all for the customer base. You know, they might get a cheap room, but you know, what happens if somebody gets hurt or if there's a fire? And so we just need to make sure that when somebody stays in Oregon, once again, I don't care if it's in a hotel or a, a or a house that they feel they basically are safe. Um, and so I do think there's going to be some sort of regulation, but I, it's too hard to tell at this point in time, uh, you know, where that's going to come from. But I think they do need to start making sure that everybody is regulated equally. Yeah. Well, if you're going to be doing commercial activity in yeah. your home, then, um, you know, you're, you're a business and you should be treated yeah. as such. So, um, so let's talk for a minute about, uh, paid family leave. Cause I know that was a hot topic. We've been talking about it in our regional meetings for the last year, year and a half that, you know, this was going to be probably one of the top issues, but it actually has kind of moved down uh, the list, and we'll we'll talk about kind of the four big issues after the break. But uh, paid family leave, wh- where do you think that's going to be this session? Uh, they'll obviously have it as a discussion, but I, I mean, it, it is a tax, so it's just a question of who gets taxed to pay for it, and they've got some bigger taxes that they want to deal with, and so I think it's just going to depend on as as you look to leadership, how many taxes do they want to tackle this time, and I do think. At this point in time, it probably is a tax that gets pushed off till the short session. But, you know, if they solve, for lack of a better term, all the other tax issues in the next three to four months and they have time, then they could tackle it this session. But I, I just think it's it's probably the fourth or fifth priority as, as you look at tax tax votes for the, the leadership. And so it's just a question of how many of those they want to take. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more of Boiled Down. Are you in need of quality alcohol server training and certification? Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association pioneered online server training in Oregon. Approved by the OLCC, Orla's online alcohol server training allows you to get training when you need it, available 24-7. Training and exam costs only $18 and is valid statewide for five years. Get started today at OregonAlcoholServer.com. All right. Welcome back to Boiled Down. Again, we're joined by Bill Perry with Balance Point Strategies. And Bill, I know you've been around Orla for, well, forever. But Mm -hmm. uh, if people wanted to get in touch with you uh, directly, what's the best way for them to reach you? Uh, Well, you can go to my website, which is balancepointstrategies.com, or you can email me at bill at bpsoregon.com. Perfect. All right. Well, we were talking a little earlier about some of the specific bills that uh, we think we're going to see that relate to the hospitality industry. But uh, I want to talk a little bit about some of the other bills, um, because as I've been talking with some other folks around the the state, some of our newly elected representatives, in fact, uh, we've been talking about kind of the four big issues that are probably going to be sucking up a lot of the oxygen under that Capitol Dome uh, this session. And so... um, as I've heard it, it's going to be uh, the K through 12 education or education generally. It's going to be the cap and trade, um, which is the carbon tax, and then housing and tax reform. Are those kind of the four areas that you're also 
hearing bill that are going to be big this session? Yeah, uh, pretty much. And in, in really K through 12 and the, the tax reform are all going to be kind of one conversation. But mm-hmm. yeah. So we know that the governor has asked for an additional $2 billion for education, which obviously means that there's going to need to be some additional taxes levied. Uh, where do we think those might come from? What, what do we think we're going to be seeing? Well, I, I really think you're going to, I mean, uh, they we're going to throw, throw out a few terms, GRT, which is gross receipts tax. You've got a BAT tax, which is business activity tax, which is you, basically it's a form of gross receipts where you don't have to count. You, you subtract your inputs and you just kind of whatever value add, you get taxed on that. Uh, and then there's a commercial activities tax like they've got in Ohio. Those those are kind of be the the different forms of taxation. And really, when you look at it, it's, you know, I, I'm not a tax expert. I'll say that. But, you know, you got Ohio as a model, Michigan as a model, and New Hampshire as a model. They've done some sort of these broader uh, taxes. And, and in essence, if you if you you basically tax consumption and not profit, it stabilizes your tax base. So over a 10 year period, it'll probably raise about the same amount of money as an income tax, but it's not as volatile, uh, which is really what they're trying to get at. Yeah. And that's always a problem for Oregon because we rely so heavily on the income yeah. tax without a sales tax that when we do have a recession, for example, um, it tends to hit us a little bit harder and take us a little bit longer to recover from that. So, yeah. And so basically they're they're going to have that conversation but i do think that there's enough people in leadership that realizes if you just pull 2 billion dollars of new money out of the out of the process it's going to hurt the economy i think there there is enough people i think that feel that way to where i don't think that that's kind of what's going to happen and so i do think there's going to be the intent as of right now is do some sort of a trade off where you do some sort of a general tax and you reduce the income tax somewhat. Now, what's somewhat, I don't know. You know, do you d- get rid of the corporate tax? Do you reduce all the rates by 20%? You know, those, and, and you're really talking about businesses here. The business will get the gross receipts tax and they would get the rate reduction. Um, and so by saying all this, I hope nobody believes that I'm supporting one option over the other. I'm just <laughs> trying to say what I, the, where I think leadership is at. But so, you know, I, I don't think they will get $2 billion in new money. So the question is, if they want to do $2 billion, can they get it through new revenues and some sort of a, you know, a cost-saving measures, uh, which you've got PERS, you've got, you know, the uh, the PEB, which is the Public Employee um, Health uh, system and you've got this thing out there that Dennis Richardson had or the Oregon buys or whatever you where you do a group buying plan to save yourself money so the those are probably the three different things that they could potentially look at uh, for trying to save money and so you know I I think ultimately they'll start out with something that's kind of a mixture uh, of uh, savings and rate reductions and a general kind of what I would call consumption tax and um but we'll have to see kind of where it goes. Um, and the governor's also proposed some additional money to deal with the housing crisis. You know, we've talked a little bit already about, um, you know, short-term rentals and, and housing on the coast. And really, it's it's an issue all over the place. But um, we're hearing things, uh, rent control, um, you know, no-cause evictions, those kinds of things. And obviously, uh, not necessarily a direct impact on, on our members as far as coming in the back door or the front door, but obviously for employees and, and workforce development, housing's a, a huge issue. So um, any insight into any of the housing bills that you think? No, I do think because of obviously what happened last session and everything, they will have some sort of a 
the cap on increased rents and I'm, you know, personally, I, I don't, I haven't been involved in this, this debate that much, so I'm not an expert, but I do, you know, it's one of those things. If you set a 9% cap, which I think has been bantered around, the question is, is that not everybody raises their rent every year, but I think you'll get a, a group of people that will basically raise up to the maximum every year just because they're afraid when they need to, they can't. And so I'm not necessarily sure, you know, that it is a solution. I do think that, you know, I've always felt that, you know, you need to get at some of the core problems, which is, you know, what we talked about with lodging taxes, you know, trying to increase year round revenues. Uh, I think you, you, the addiction problems, the mental health problems, uh, which, you know, you get back to the, the school side of things, you know, the, the mental health side of schools is really getting dramatically worse. I think that's where a lot of people, um, are starting to understand that. I mean, we had, counselors when we were uh, in school and they don't have them as much they're starting to replace them but you know suicides you know i hate to say it but you look at portland salem even you know where i am in canby you're starting to see a lot more of them and so really when you're talking about you know what what we need i think as a state uh it is you know trying to address the mental health and then i think a lot of these things like schools housing and everything else will start to improve hopefully but i i I'm not sure that the housing uh, is necessarily a, a supply problem. It's more kind of other problems out there. So, so did I get off on a tangent? No, not at all. No, it's I think yeah. it's all great information. Yeah. We always want to hear what you have to say, though. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, speaking of which, what what haven't we covered that you think is going to be important to our members uh, that, that may happen in that building? And and realizing that there's always going to be bills that are going to get uh, you know put out there or somebody's going to do a gut and stuff toward the end of the session so we always have to keep our eyes and ears open for that kind of stuff but anything we haven't covered no i think like you know i i would say that the the cap and trade is going to be the interesting issue to watch because i do think you know like i said we don't we don't really have a dog in the fight and and i think when you look at climate issues there're obviously stuff that we need to address uh from a global perspective not we as an industry but you know, I think the policymakers need to address it. But it's going to be an interesting thing to where when you get major- majorities as large, and I don't care if it's a Republican or a Democrat, but right now the Democrats have got a large majority. And so you're going to start to get a, you're going to get, you know, you, you think about fights between Republicans and Democrats. I think you're going to have fights between Democrats. You're going to have the basically urban Democrats that are going to want to go, you know, very, very hard left on extreme climate change. And you're going to have the rural Democrats that are sitting there going, you can't do that to us for different reasons. And so the the fight is going to be really internal of your bigger, uh, um, your bigger party instead of the, you know, the two-party system. It's going to be inside the Democratic Party. And so I do think when you look at from a civics perspective, how they deal with the whole carbon tax issue is going going to basically tell us a lot about how that that majority is going to start to, you know, solve some of their internal issues. And then just getting back once again, uh, I know we talked a little bit about the atmosphere in in the Capitol, and obviously we're in a long session. Uh, We started a couple weeks earlier this year, though. Uh, We're starting January 22nd, and that's to get us out of the building by June 30th. Yes. So we don't want to have that 4th of July kind of hangover, if you will, or or forcing people to come in on the weekend. Does that uh, that change the dynamics of the Capitol at all, do you think? Is that going to make it easier to get out of that building by June 30th? Uh, 
No, not really. I mean, it's the budget always drives the process. And so obviously, if they come into it expecting $2 billion in new revenue, uh, I think we'll probably be here till June 30th or whatever. But if they, I think, find some sort of a compromise position of 600 million, you know, it's kind of odd that you're saying that 600 million is a compromise position. But I mean, <laughs> it, it is. And I think they probably get out a little bit earlier. But I, it, it is, you know, it gets back to that kind of internal uh, caucus dynamic is how do you temper, for lack of a better word, the um, the urban legislators of, you know, this is kind of what's more fair and, and this is how we probably get out of the building early and how much pushback do you get? And so the, uh, you know, leadership comes in different forms. And in this particular time, I think it's all going to be inter-party leadership and how they deal with each other that determines how quickly we get out of the building. All right, we're going to take another quick break and we'll come back with the Advocacy Watch. Get your staff trained and certified for serving alcohol by Oregon's highest quality training provider for the hospitality industry. Orla provides easy to follow interactive online training that is valid statewide for five years. Employees can get the state mandated alcohol server training they need on their schedule and now for only $18. Go to OregonAlcoholServer.com today. Welcome back. It's time for Advocacy Watch. This is where we boil down some of the local, state, and national government affairs issues that you should be aware of. Joining me right now is Jason Brandt, President and CEO for the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association. Thanks for being here, Jason. Yeah, also known as Greg's boss. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Greg. <laughs> he reminds me of that almost every single day, so <laughs> I get post-it notes. I don't actually. know about that. <laughs> so, Well, Jason, let's talk uh, local stuff and specifically uh, meals taxes. We've got a couple of proposed meals taxes in Hood River County and Curry County, and we had just defeated one uh, down in Jacksonville, the city of Jacksonville, actually, last November. It was on the ballot, but um, we're starting to see these meals taxes pop up a little bit more, and I'm wondering if you have any insight into that. Yeah, the, the reality is we're probably going to continue seeing these, so not just Hood River County, not just Curry County. We have to continue keeping a watchful eye on where these pop up, and the real reason behind why it's happening is the, the reality that, just like the state government, local governments have to balance their budgets, and the exponential increases in health insurance and PERS are, are really causing these local governments to look for new sources of revenue and in places they really haven't looked before or haven't looked aggressively at before. So we have the emergence of what I'm calling these alternative revenue task forces, uh, not just in Curry County, not just in Hood River County, but in areas across the state. Uh, it just proves the importance of having an association like ours to keep a watchful eye on on this issue and this development. Uh, I feel, I feel bad for local governments being in, in a tough spot. They really do need reforms to take place at the state level that uh, soften the blow, so to speak, of how much these expenses are increasing on their watch. Uh, they don't really have another choice because they're mandated to pay for these things based on state law. And so if they have to balance their budget and they have these expenses, they have to have the money to pay for these expenses. We don't think it's fair for that to be on the backs of one industry, and that being hospitality. So we will continue defending the rights of our members to stand up and say no to these proposals. 
And it's a great reminder, too, of why it's so important that folks reach out to us uh, here at Orla if they do hear about anything that's happening in their city or their county or yeah. their, their regional area. Right. Um, the best source of information that we have about the issues that are popping up is you, our members. So, um, Well, a great know. example of that, too, Greg, is what happened in Jacksonville, right? And we were able to be successful there with our partners in Jacksonville. A huge thanks to Whit Parker there. Uh, a perfect example of a leader who stepped up informed us of the issue, the challenge in front of us, and then also provided the leadership on the ground. We were able to pool and complement uh, his effort with Orla resources to get the win and ultimately defeat the tax on the November ballot. So that was exciting. Yeah, and it says a lot about wit uh, as a person because he's not even in the hospitality industry, right? right he's right. owner and editor for the Jacksonville Review paper. Uh, and so it was an important issue to him, though. And, and as you mentioned, we really owe a huge debt of gratitude to him. So... Uh, let's shift gears for just a second and talk about something, uh, some good news we got out of our uh, friends up in Washington State, uh, Initiative 124, which was a, a, a ballot measure that passed there, uh, I think it was last year, uh, having to do with hotel panic buttons, but also about square footage of uh, rooms that uh, people could clean in a shift and health insurance. And they had they had several things all in one initiative. Uh, and I know that uh, American Hotel and Lodging Association, our friends at the Washington Hospitality Association and uh, Seattle Hoteliers all got together and appealed uh, that ballot measure passing. And we got some good news on that. recently. Yeah, a big congratulations to our partners in Washington. This is a, a massive win. Uh, they were overwhelmingly defeated at the ballot when Initiative 124 passed. And a lot of us were incredibly concerned about that for the Northwest hotel industry. Basically, voters uh, did say in Seattle that uh, they felt like they were voting on panic buttons to keep housekeepers safe, as an example, but also included in the fine print of Initiative 124 was uh, the amount of square footage a housekeeper could clean and a lot of other very burdensome regulations that would have adversely impacted uh, the hotel industry and those very workers themselves and their ability to make a paycheck and bring that home to their families. So a lot of concern about... Uh, the efforts by unions in Washington to get that passed and their success in getting it passed. In the Northwest, the laws are a little bit different, but there's a single subject requirement saying that when you put something on the ballot, it has to be specific to one subject. You can't, for example, say panic buttons, vote on this, uh, voters in Washington, and then have other things like how much square footage you can clean also included. Those are separate subjects. So a lawsuit was filed, uh, which the uh, folks in Washington recently won on a three to zero decision. So overwhelming decision, not something you always see on appeal, but very excited because they had lost the original lawsuit. It went to appeal. And now uh, they have a situation up in, in Washington where they're working through the process, but ultimately uh, initiative 124 has been deemed illegal uh, by the appeals court up in Washington. So we're very excited about that. That could have wide-ranging positive impacts on us here in Oregon, given their success in Washington. Just another reason why on the West Coast we have to continually keep uh, an open mind and uh, a commitment to over-communication, uh, whether it's hospitality business in California or Washington or Oregon, we all have to know what we're, what's happening uh, in order to stay on top of these very important issues that are arising. And we have some great partners in both of those states. Uh, we do have great communication with them and, of course, uh, with our national partners as well that help us, uh, you know, keep in touch and, and know what's going on. So um, let's talk fun 
let's let's talk a little taste Oregon. I thought we were already having fun though. <laughs> well, yeah, let's, so let's taste Oregon is exciting. I mean, we love bringing the industry down to Salem every year uh, for a legislative reception with the 91 people in Salem that are making the laws for our great state. Uh, so this is an opportunity for our membership to show up in force, um, have drinks, uh, enjoy food from a number of our members. We have some amazing food vendors this year. We're going to be at the Salem Convention Center on Tuesday, February 19th from 4.30 to 7.30 p.m. Uh, the event is uh, presented by Cisco. We're very, very grateful to Cisco for their partnership, not just on this event, but so many other things that we do at Orla. Uh, some of the food vendors that will be joining us, Block 15 Brewing Company out of Corvallis, Blue Star Donuts in Portland, Gambaretti's Italian Restaurant in Salem, uh, as well as a number of others. So we're very excited about the opportunity to uh, put our best foot forward as a hospitality industry and have a great networking event with our legislators who are able to show up that evening. It's a free event. All you need to do is sign up online. So you can check out OregonRLA.org for more information on that. Yeah, we do require an RCP, uh, as Jason mentioned, OregonRLA.org, and then slash taste. And this is a joint legislative reception presented by uh, Orla and AHOA, the Asian American Hotel Owners Association. So yeah. always appreciate their partnerships as well. Another great, re- another great reminder of how important these partnerships are across uh, not just the state boundary lines, but also our, our national partners. So, you know, Initiative 124 with the American Hotel and Lodging Association so involved there. And then you have Asian American Hotel Owners Association uh, very involved as a partner on Taste Oregon for a number of years now. So it'll be great to have them there. For sure. Well, as always, keep the emails coming to info at OregonRLA.org. We want to hear from you. Uh, Let us know not only your government affairs questions, but also your opinions and what's going on in your area. And with that, I'd like to say thank you again to Bill Perry, our contract lobbyist for Orla with Balance Point Strategies, and Jason Brandt, Orla President and CEO, for joining me today. I'm your host, Greg Askley, Director of Government Affairs for Orla. Thanks for listening.